everybody. Uh, yes, Annabeth, please. Thank you. You're in such big trouble. No, I won't. Uh, the uh, the uh, passage for today is Luke 1, 39 through 56. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of our womb, and why has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scouted the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in the remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham, to his descendants forever. Mary remained with her for about three months and then returned to her home. So last week we started our New Testament treatment of Advent, and it was uh, an extension of uh, Trey's ruminations on this book of Malachi that he'd <laughs> talked about for a while. Uh, and the, you know, the central theme for both were about redemption. They're about the idea that um, God, because God loves God's people, is acting in the world uh, in ways that uh, refine us, that uh, burn out the dross or purify the metal, that make us uh, and, and, and point us towards a goal which is uh, larger than we could even imagine or certainly achieve on our own. And, you know, so part of the uh, sense of that, uh, last week we talked about the idea of favor, and we talked about uh, Mary, and we started out thinking about Mary by, you know, saying that we often cover Mary in like a, I don't know, a sea of, uh, of high fructose corn syrup and, and cotton candy, and what, uh, what do we remember about her? We think, oh, she's this really sweet gal who did what God said. And, you know, she was afraid and she was young and she was dutiful. And, you know, she's like, I don't know, she's like a, I don't know, like a Glee character in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. She's like break into song every now and again to celebrate something about the character and the, the movement of God. And don't get me wrong, all those things may be true. But, you know, when we look at Mary, oftentimes we also tend to not see, to underestimate or just to uh, undersell uh, how radical and how powerful what it is that Mary is doing. That, uh, Like last week we talked about the fact that Mary was uh, uh, very explicitly framed in the narrative of Luke as a prophet. I mean, I, I thought, of, you know, Luke and I had a conversation about this that was real influential for me. And I thought it was great. 40 years for me, plus a Christian, uh, former theology student, yada, yada, yada. I had never really had consistently sold to me in any forum the message that Mary is a prophet, that she fits exactly the mold of what it takes to be uh, to have a prophetic call. And I was thinking about the implications of this. And even after I finished the sermon last week, I thought Lucia would put it better than I, I could have ever. I didn't want to re- uh, repeat that uh, the, the argument back to the rest of you. Uh, for all the times that we see the infancy narrative of Christ as 
an elaborate parlor trick in which God justifies that God's prophecies can come true. When we see Mary as a prophet, what we see is that other prophets have failed repeatedly. Israel was in ruins that, in fact, uh, Herod was running the show. The presence of God had not been around in literally hundreds of years that other prophets had come and brought their word over and over and over and not achieved the end goal. But if we see Mary as a prophet, she is literally the final prophet who restores Israel by birthing a word, by rebuilding the temple, by making it possible for there to be a new and a full Israel. Of course, the important thing is what is done through Jesus, but God is framing Mary as an actor in this story that, uh, that brings a prophetic word that finally is effective in establishing a new nation and finally is effective in establishing a new way of relating to God. And I guess that, as I think about it, thank you, buddy. Thank you. As I think about it more and, and more, this is the thing I, I think this Advent I want to say about Mary, and it's never just about Mary, it's about how it is that God achieves God's goals in the world by granting favor to each of us, by seeing us and empowering us and giving us the gift of grace to achieve what exactly uh, God wants us to achieve in the kingdom. And so uh, yet last time we thought about Mary as a prophet, this time I want to think about Mary as a daughter of, of Zion, as a... Uh, as, uh, as in, her, in her own way, a kind of, uh, of, uh, of sovereign, as a queen. And uh, I want to do it to uh, counteract the kind of sea of, uh, uh, of syrupy sweetness that we pile on top of Mary to no longer undersell that in the scripture that women are powerful, important, transformative, and more importantly that just because one is I don't know, a young teenage girl doesn't mean that they, one can't serve the kingdom of God in ways that are radical and transformative. So, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but when all the other prophets fail, this Advent I want us to think about Mary as one of the last prophets, a girl not much older than Annabeth or Calla, who delivers the world a word that reestablishes the kingdom of Israel and sets it free. So Mary is a daughter of Zion, and uh, a person who in some way serves like a king and, and reestablishes the Davidic line. And I want to see something that we tend to wash out about the Christmas narrative. And I wanted to kind of start it with this little, little matter of genealogy. This is something Trace talked about before, but most folks who, you know, you've got one of two good options for the infancy narrative when you want to uh, do Advent and think about what God is trying to tell us in Christmas. You can, that's why you've heard sermons on uh, either of these two a uh, number of times uh, before. I'm, I think one year I did John because I wanted to throw a little variation into the mix, but you've heard all this stuff preached one way or another, and one of the stories that we've heard and that Trey has talked about too is this idea that you you start either with this kind of narrative about uh, Jesus coming into the world and, and songs in Luke, or you start with uh, this genealogy in Matthew. And does anybody remember what's weird about the genealogy in Matthew? There's like series of 14 generations of begats and begats and begats. And the whole point is to say, hey, uh, you know, God is reestablishing the line of David here. But, uh, you know, if you want to turn to Matthew 1 real quick and look at it, what's the problem with the genealogy? Anybody remember? Besides Trey and Tamsin, who we talked about this before. Who does the genealogy of uh, the Davidic line come through in Matthew? Joseph, right? And the, the, not to put too fine a point on it, but the way that uh, folks in the ancient Middle East would have thought about the problem, 
the uh, genealogy is transferred not necessarily by status or, or by adoption, but genealogy is transferred by blood. If you want to claim that Jesus is part of and a reestablishment of the line of David, the root of Jesse, the branch that comes out of the dead stump of the Davidic line, there's a fairly significant break in that line. I don't know how to put it much more gently between Joseph and between Jesus. Jesus is not related to Joseph by blood. Why is it that the narrative starts by saying that Jesus then is a fulfillment of the prophecy that a king in the line of David would rise up? What's wrong with this picture is that Israel happened to be pretty particular about bloodlines. Joseph recognizes Jesus as a son. We know that in Matthew 2. But let's just say that that in and of itself makes for a pretty weak claim to the line of David. Not to put too fine a point on it, but Joseph, who is a faithful father and a good father and all that, did not have a blood tie to Jesus. So Jesus, through Joseph, does not have a blood tie to the line of David. And, you know, there's this beautiful narrative in the New Testament about adoption, about God, uh, not blood not mattering as much as God looking at us and God adopting us. But it's strange that Matthew starts with establishing a bloodline for the genealogy of Jesus that does not validate and, in fact, invalidates Jesus' claim to the throne by blood. Luke is dealing explicitly with this problem because Luke, too, wants to see Jesus as a fulfillment of the Davidic line. So we'll, we'll get into that. But in the ancient Middle East, the point is that folks would have had a preference for relation by blood to see someone as part of a family line. And as we pointed out before... Mary uh, is a person who is under all kinds of constraints, both in terms of her relationship to Joseph and Joseph's family line. And, well, Mary's in a fairly marginal position in general. And we've talked about this before, but just to run through the case for those of you who weren't here uh, in in past years, uh, Mary is what? She's a young woman. She is uh, uh, women in that culture were essentially property of either their fathers or their husbands. She's pregnant. And so she's in an incredibly marginal position socially. She's the kind of person who would have been utterly rejected by all the people around her, that if you had a relative who was pregnant in that time outside of wedlock, you would have shunned them. It would be difficult for you. It would have been dishonor to the family to even talk to the, uh, a person like that. And so Mary doesn't have a particularly strong or a robust tie in terms of social status to Joseph, to Joseph's family, to really any of her families, uh, uh, to her own biological family. Mary would have been a person who is at the very margins of not only the family structure, but the social structure and the economic structure. She's a person who would have been an utter outcast, not only to her family, but to everyone else. She's a person who should have, all, by all means, been shunned. And so what does Mary do? She goes to visit this wonderful relative of hers, Elizabeth. And what does Elizabeth do instead of shunning her or instead of telling Mary to go away or instead of telling Mary what was wrong with a person who had a child outside of wedlock before she was, while she was pledged to be married to someone else, Elizabeth, in fact, embraces her and demonstrates a joy in seeing her. So the scripture says today, in those days, Mary set out and went with haste to Judean a town in the hill country where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And here's the beautiful thing about this story. The whole thing is set up as this kind of incredible underdog story. Now there's this infertile elderly woman uh, who is recently miraculously pregnant in the backwoods of Israel. 
uh, you know, so outside of mighty Jerusalem, miles away from Rome, and she greets a 13, 14-year-old girl pregnant with a child that we would have understood at the time socially to be illegitimate, and then something miraculous happens. So Elizabeth hears Mary's greeting, and what? The child leaps in her womb. And the scripture says, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb left for joy. I mean, think about what a beautiful and, and powerful reversal it is that instead of what we'd expect Elizabeth to do, which is say, Mary, oh, well, you know, here's pregnant Mary, here to see me, probably ask for a handout or something because no one else accept her somewhere else. She says to her, why is it that the mother of my Lord has come to me? And then the baby jumps and more on the jumping bun in the oven in a second. I want you to put a, what do you say these days in a meeting? Put a pin in that. I want to talk first about the idea of blessing, which appears three or four times in this passage. The term for blessing here, blessed are you and blessed is the fruit of your womb, is not the usual word for blessing that we talk about. What's the usual word for blessing? Traded a series on this. Makarios, right? Blessed. So blessed are the, blessed are the. And, and, and that's a word for blessing. Blessed that means something like, you know, you're esteemed, you're seen as pretty great, you're favored. Uh, but the word here is not makarios for blessed. That it is later, but in the specific part we're looking at, uh, you know, uh, 42 through 44, the word for blessing is eulogomene, which means something like, uh, the good word, or that people will attribute a good word or will talk about you in a way that is honorific. So Makarios is like, hey, you're, you're favored or you're picked out or there's something special about you. Eulogomene means something, uh, I don't know, it's, a, it's like it has a his, world historical character to it. It's a, it's a sense of a good word being attributed to you like throughout the ages. And in an honor culture, like we've talked about before, to say that people would talk about you as time went on and would attribute to you goodness, would attribute to you some world transforming character is kind of a big deal. So Elizabeth is not only saying, Mary, I accept you. And in fact, I am uh, not only happy and overjoyed that you're here, not only is the bun jumping in my oven as, as you come near to me, but she's saying that in you, I see someone, in you, I see the possibility of a word that will fundamentally change uh, our, our future, that future generations will refer to and, and venerate and will see as world changing. It's, it's so much more than the kind of hashtag blessed that we're used to thinking about. Instead, it's the idea that Elizabeth looks at Mary and sees in Mary and a child that is not yet born that there is a word that will transform the generations that are to come and to reestablish a new and a perfect Israel. It's a beautiful thing. And here's the thing to me, the, the reason why Mary and the status of the fruit of her womb would have the status of being world-changing, of having good words said about them is why, and the scripture is very clear about it, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Beautiful. Mary is bringing into the world a word which is the fulfillment of God's prophecy and promise to her. But here's the thing. What is the promise that is fulfilled in her? That's the big question. Is the promise that's fulfilled in her simply that there's going to be a baby or that she'd be pregnant? Of course, it's, 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 it's so much more. It's that in Mary, the entirety of the promises to Israel are fulfilled. To get back to a, a good tray theme, here in Mary, the first promise that is made 
to humanity, that the fruit of the woman will crush the head of the serpent is fulfilled. That if Jesus is the second Adam in a very significant way, Mary is the second Eve, the one through whom the woman can produce a kingly offspring that will once and for all reestablish Israel, defeat the serpent, and by extension defeat the orders of sin and of of death. There's a literary genre here that we have to see that's every bit as powerful as the genre of the prophet that we talked about last week. You know, there's a call, I'm like, oh, I don't know if I can do it, and the angel's like, sure you can, and then you go and do it, and there's this big transformation. The literary genre here with deep Old Testament roots is the idea of a daughter of Zion. See, Israel had this thing that, you know, Israel's like on the rocks a bunch of times. It's kind of their history of getting kicked around and, I don't know, sitting by a a river eating stewed tomatoes from a can, thinking that things could be better. I mean, Israel uh, has had a, 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 a rough existence. And time and time again, when Israel is at this low point, when it's at a weak point, when there's no hope, when there's not even a person around who would be worthy of or in the royal line to be king, time and time again, when there was nothing left for Israel, what happens is there is a woman who rises up And who, I don't know, points to the fences and calls their shot and says, in me and through me, God will reestablish a kingdom. God will reestablish a nation. I am a daughter of Zion. I speak a prophetic word of hope. And through me and in me, God will fulfill a promise to humanity and bring about a true king. Mary says exactly that in the Magnificat, which, by the way, is like one of the worst read pieces of literature in the New Testament because it's one of those places where the vision of Mary is smothered in, I don't know, whatever sweet uh, thing that she's supposed to be smothered in and covered in candy dots is crazy because here's this 14-year-old girl that's talking about people that are going to be sent up from the throne and people who uh, are respecting the loneliness of people, fulfilling promises to descendant of Abraham forever, and the powerful are going to be thrown from their thrones and the rich are going to go away empty. But what's interesting about Mary's song here is not just that this is a girl who makes all kinds of threats and all kinds of calls about how it is that God responds to the world. The Magnificat here is, uh, fits this pattern, and the pattern makes a lot of sense in the context was Mar- that Mary was in. It was about power and privilege being reversed. Herod and Rome are going to get their comeuppance. All the normal stuff we talk about at Resurrection Church, about how there's a political context to these things that implies a vision of hope for us. All, all those things are present here. Mary is really threatening the existing Order, But Mary is also repeating a song that has been sung before by another daughter of Israel. Mary is repeating a set of themes that uh, were at the root of Israel having established for it a royal line. The woman who is hidden in here, who is underneath Mary's song is who? Hannah. Hannah, the wife of Elkanah, the mother of the prophet Samuel, another woman who uh, had a child despite uh, declared uh, infertility or inability to, to, uh, to birth an heir. Hannah is more than simply someone's mother. Hannah is a singing prophet like Mary who reestablishes a kingly line. So listen to Hannah's song, 1 Samuel 2, 2 through 10, and, and think about how it squares with it and, and, and fits over the Magnificat. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in God. My mouth uh, derides my enemies because I rejoice in my victory There is no one holy like the Lord, no one besides you, no rock like our God. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. 
The Lord and his, his adversaries will be shattered. The Most High King will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, will give strength to his king, and exalt the power of his anointed. If those two things are, are parallel, there's this connection between Hannah and, and Samuel, who eventually uh, establishes the Davidic line, and Mary and Jesus, who reestablishes the Davidic line, then it makes a lot of sense that Luke would frame Mary's song as a, as a repeat of Hannah's. God is trying to tell us something in that parallel here. And here's the thing. What does Hannah's offspring do? Hannah's offspring, Samuel, goes and does what? Anoints David, establishes the sovereign line itself. When Israel didn't have a king, it didn't really have anyone to be its leader or to organize it. If Hannah was the one who made possible the first nation of Israel, Mary is the one who makes possible in and through Jesus a second and a restored and a renewed Israel. As it is with Hannah, so it is with Mary. She's a daughter of Zion who prophesies and sets into motion the coming of a king. Both of these women are in some way not only prophets, but they are queens in a sense, and that they're birthing a sovereign. So what? I mean, nice insight, prophet, queen. Really, you know, kind of about the run-up to the real show. Isn't the real show supposed to be Jesus and supposed to be David? Well, sort of. See, this is the thing, and this is why I wanted to return to the baby jumping in the womb. The most striking part of Hannah's song to me, and it's the part that is not exactly present in Mary's song, but is present in the story, is that Hannah says that the marker of a true king, a true sovereign, one who is sovereign over everything, Hannah says, particularly this part, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to shale and rises up. The sign that Mary is the bearer of the true king of Israel, the sign that she is the one who rebirths the line of David, I think is the jumping of the baby in the womb. There's this debate about it, okay? I've I've never myself been pregnant, but, you know. (laughs) Yeah, right? I can tell you about that, right? Uh, But, you know, the the ancient Jews uh, thought about the relationship between a baby and soul quite specifically. So they thought that, uh, when the baby first started to move in a mother's womb, that that was the time that the soul come, came into the body of the baby. They, and even today, we call it the quickening, when you begin to feel fetal movement. And, uh, and, and for that culture, the idea of the quickening would have been uh, an example of God producing life. That In their culture, they would have connected that first movement of the baby with the fundamental power of life. I think the fact that the baby jumps in Elizabeth's womb is not just about a parlor trick that helps us understand how closely related Jesus and John's futures will be. I think the fact that the baby jumps in the womb is a fundamental recognition that Jesus is the true and final sovereign who can bring to life by his presence, that Jesus is not simply the king of Israel, but it's the king of the entire universe, that the baby that Mary bears in her womb is one who will have a fundamental control over everything, not just over Israel, but a true Israel that is extended to all the world. And to me, that's the point of saying that we ought to think about Mary as a daughter of Zion or as a king, because the genealogy of David is broken. If you lived in Israel, there would have been no legitimate heir. And to be honest, it would have been difficult to understand how it is that God's people would be raised up again. But the truth is that God doesn't really care very much about bloodlines or the entitlement of blood, that God is 
a sovereign who by God's own choice can point at us and adopt us and say, you are my child. And I declare that you have victory over death and that you have victory over everything that binds you and constrains you because a sovereign king can make a sovereign choice to bring anything that that king wants to bring to life. And when the line of Israel was dead and there, when there was nothing left of it, God looks at Mary and chooses her and says, you will bear a son who will bring about my new kingdom. And in him and through him, we will have power not only over the nation, but over life and death itself. And death and sin will be defeated. And we all will become by adoption his royal progeny. Mary sees that the line is broken. God chooses her and moves through her just as God chooses us and moves through us to reestablish a kingdom whereby we can become a people, whereby we can inhabit a nation, whereby we can claim in God's name a world in which sin and death are utterly defeated. And that is why a real king can choose and bring a people to life. That is why Mary is more than a prophet. That is why she is an image or a symbol here of God moving in and through us to bring us to life when everyone and everything seems dead. Amen. Uh, we typically have questions and talk and commentary for a bit at resurrection. So questions, commentary, talk. Trey, how'd I do on the Old Testament parts? You're great, man. Did I, did I miss anything about Samuel? Any, any details you want to fill in there? Well, I, I would say that one thing that's really interesting is Matthew's genealogy actually ends with the Holy Spirit <clears throat> yeah. Jesus to life. And, you know, going with your theme of, of bringing about life and creation, um, you know, Matthew's trying to, his genealogy, part of what he's trying to do is creating a new Genesis, a new world. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, he's borrowing language from Genesis and other do that, or do that. And if you remember, the first appearance of the Holy Spirit, of the Spirit, is in Genesis. The Ruach. When, when yeah. Genesis, the Ruach is involved in creation, it's hovering over creation. Didn't so we talk about, root, and like that, the, this is, didn't we say that was the same root last week of uh, what the Spirit does over Mary? Right, right, yeah. right, yeah. right, yeah. So this is definitely, definitely fits in with that. Yeah. You know, this re- recreation. And that uh, yeah, was really good about the the, the life uh, with uh, with John. Yeah, yeah. And I mostly just wanted to give a shout out to preteen girls, you know. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. uh, anything else y'all want to talk about or discuss? Did you really? You go, what? And she says, what? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Unless anybody else has any other. Go ahead. Prayers of the people. What do we got? And we're thankful that Akumi's back and prays for her family. Yes. Pray for Big Jean. What else? People traveling and stuff for the holidays and having to deal with Okay. I, and special prayer of thanks for uh, double Mason today. That's pretty big, you know. Mason power. <laughs> Anything else? Um, a birthday. 
and um, it's just maybe the birthday gecko. What's his name? Dusk. Dusk. Okay. Anything else? All right, let's pray. God, I thank you for today. I thank you for uh, every person that you have uh, brought to uh, resurrection. I just ask that you uh, help us to uh, focus our minds, our hearts, our souls on you, that we are submissive to and pliant and open to what it is that you want to do with us. Help us to uh, put you at the center and to make you the governing principle. Yeah, we thank you, Lord, for uh, all, first for all the kids in our community for birthdays, for for dusk. Yeah. And uh, just for every, uh, every one of the children that you've brought here and the amazing gift they are to each one of us, help us to be good parents to them and a good community for them and good uh, mentors for and uh, to see every child as also a property of our church and to, uh, to, to work to raise them as you would call us, to raise them and be examples for them, every one of us, whether the children are ours or unrelated to us. Um, God, we uh, thank you that Akumi's back. We uh, just thank you for the elements of grace and peace in her mother's passing. And just uh, we pray that she's uh, uh, her memory and, and who she was continue to be a inspiration for and a testament to and a light that points towards your life. We pray for uh, Jean. And uh, Lord, we pray for um, Brian especially, that you just empower him to uh, feel a comfort in and a peace with the words that he has to say to him and give him a sense of, wisdom and give him a sense of your presence and just uh, give him peace and give uh, gene peace too and we pray for healing of course but we also pray for your mercy and uh, that that you were present there we pray for folks who are traveling both uh, uh, from resurrection on the road or uh, traveling otherwise over the holidays bless them keep them help each one of them not only to be safe but to be a light to uh, the people that they come in contact with and uh, we pray lord for uh everyone as we go forward into uh, the Advent season, not to uh, fetishize it or make it the most important thing, but Lord, just help us to see what you are doing in the world and to have our faith renewed and to have our uh, our sense of your expectation of us uh, re-enlivened so that we can be your face and your hands and your feet to a world which is broken. We lift all these things up to you, Lord God, and we pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. God, we uh, sit before you in a time of confession and just uh, we list for you the things that we see in the places that we know where we have fallen short of you and what you've called us to do, where you've asked us not to do something and we have, where you've asked us to do something and we haven't. We lift those things up to you, God, in silent confession. We pray that we can be just open and honest with you and that you reveal to us the places where we are broken and in need of your healing. So we confess together. 
Most merciful God, we confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, so we may delight in your will, walk in your ways, to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Those who are uh, helping to serve communion and come forth. One of the uh, big miracles of Christmas is that a 14-year-old uh, girl of, of almost no means could be uh, a prophet of Israel, a daughter of Zion, and one who could reestablish the Davidic line, and that she would uh, bear the biggest miracle of Christmas, a, a child who, uh, though finite and born at a specific place and point in time and fully human, uh, is the very embodiment of the Almighty, all-powerful, eternal, immortal, unsurpassable, all-knowing, all-loving God. And that miracle of that God and that baby is, uh, is, uh, is a miracle that is replicated uh, in an element as simple as bread. And on the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord took that bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and he raised it saying, this is my blood shed for you, shed for the forgiveness of your sins. It is the new covenant. Uh, if you believe, as we do, that you are a person who has sinned, who is in need of uh, redemption, and that that redemption is found in the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you're welcome to take this meal with us. This is not the meal of Resurrection Church. It is a meal uh, for God's church and uh, a foretaste of the great feast that we will all one day participate in as we sit around the throne of God. Uh, there is uh, wine on the inside, juice on the outside, uh, uh, bread and a, a gluten-free option, should anyone want to avail themselves of that, and let's take the elements uh, individually today.
All right, uh, please rise with me for the doxology and the benediction. sons and daughters of the new Zion. Go in peace and serve the Lord. Thanks for you guys. Uh, we got a recycling bin in back. I can stack here. I'll stack it up for you. Thank you. Don't actually
Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh shoot, it's still recording. Oh, you got all that? <laughs>